0: Amen. Well, good morning and again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And uh, my prayer for you this morning is that your heart would be encouraged to see the significance of your role in shaping uh, not just the hearts of your children, but the truly uh, shaping the world. And uh, and so I I made a Um, I've made many mistakes in ministry, but one of the mistakes I made early on was assuming that because it's Mother's Day, that every woman who entered into the church on Mother's Day was happy, and so for me, early on, Mother's Day was always an attempt to celebrate or to create a pep rally for moms. And, and quickly, I learned that for a lot of moms, that's the case. There's a lot to celebrate. Um, finally, somebody says thank you for the other 364 days of serving and cleaning up and being in the trenches without any expression of gratitude. And so Mother's Day means something, uh, something special to our ladies, and there's joy in it. But then I, I met ladies who, um, who have multiple miscarriages and never been able to have uh, living children of their own, or um, friends who, within the last week or two, before Mother's Day had lost um, lost a mother, um, marriages that have been wrecked, and, and, and young mothers now trying to raise a family and earn a living. And, and, and so I know that, that Mother's Day can both be joyful and challenging for, for ladies. And so, um, so my hope today is not that we would create a, just a pep rally for moms, uh, but that truly, from our instruction from the Word of the Lord, that you would be encouraged to see the significance of your role, whether today is a joyful day or it 's a day of sorrow or maybe a little bit of both, that you would find um, you would find a significance in your role. I think one of the, um, one of the greatest myths in the modern Christian church today is that somehow, because the Bible calls for and promotes male leadership in the home and in the church that, uh, that somehow there's a diminished value uh, in the role and the significance of, of moms, and I think that's a great myth um, in our modern church, that, um, that, that the male leadership calling uh, is really to set moms up to succeed in their significance and in their calling and their role to be moms, uh, both in the home and, 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 and women who follow Jesus passionately, who get involved in ministry. And so um, I'm encouraged about today. I hope, I hope you are as well. Um, I think that we see from, from Jesus' example um, quite the opposite of a lack of dignity. If, if anybody uh, historically in any religion has ever, has ever breathed dignity into the role of women, it was Jesus himself uh, was accompanied by women. He, um, won, in one instance in particular in Luke 13, um, I thought this was uh, profound. And so Jesus is always going toe-to-toe with Pharisees over really important issues. And so one Sabbath he's teaching and, uh, and, and a, a woman who had been um, physically uh, enabled, had been kind of bent over for 18 years, was brought before Jesus to heal, and these religious leaders call Jesus out on it and go after him. And I love his statement when he responds to them uh, by bestowing dignity to this, this lady. He's, and he says to them, basically, um, what, are you, what are you talking about? You guys are willing to give your basically your mules, your donkeys, your livestock a day off to just let them have a day on the Sabbath. How about this daughter of Abraham who's worth so much more, has so much more dignity than your livestock? Why would you rebuke me for setting her free on the Sabbath? And there's just one example of many where Jesus speaks dignity and value into into women. We're going to see even from the Apostle Paul himself Um, where he calls out the value that that ladies have, moms have in particular, on shaping uh, the lives of children and therefore the world. Uh, We're going to be both in 1 and 2 Timothy. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, uh, we'll go ahead and get started there. As you turn there, just for our visitors, we're moving through a series this year uh, entitled Letters to the Church, where we are looking at these New Testament books that began as letters uh, primarily written from Paul to the churches, and we 're in a section of that series. this is week three of four weeks where we 're looking at First and Second Timothy and Titus together um, there 's a lot of similarities between these writings where Paul writes to these young pastors and gives them instruction and so today what we 're going to do is look primarily at first and Second Timothy at what Paul uh, tells us about uh, the sincerity of faith. And, uh, and so we began this series really in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. So I'm going to reread that for us this morning, uh, and then we'll move forward from there. So uh, in, as Paul opens up his letter to Timothy in uh, verse 5, 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, he says the aim of our charge, so what he's saying is here's the, here's the purpose of what we're doing here. The aim of our charge is love, okay, but then he qualifies it, not just emotional love, not just um, uh, no offense, dads or men, not just um, you know, chocolates and, and cards and flowers kind of love, but a true sense of love, and the way you know it's true is where it comes from, and he lists these sources. A love that issues or comes out of or comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so we're going to hone in on those words sincere faith today and look at the counsel from, from Paul to Timothy and, and really read it as counsel from God to us on what it means to have a sincere faith. So what we're gonna do up front is we're gonna spend just a moment looking at a few um, scriptures that define faith for us and give us an idea of where faith comes from. Um, None more popular when it comes to figuring out what faith is uh, than Hebrews 11. Example after example after example is given. Matter of fact, it's sometimes referred to as the hall of faith. These Old Testament men and women who exemplified faith in a way that because of their faith, God gave to them righteousness. And so verse 1 starts with a definition of what faith is in Hebrews 11. So you don't have to turn there. We'll, you can keep your, keep your spot in First Timothy, but we'll put it on the screen. So now, now faith, here's the definition. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. When you take a just a magnifying glass and hone in on just the word faith and, and look at it in the original language of how you define this word, you get a similar definition. Uh, faith is the conviction of what is true. Okay, so it's not just belief. It has with it a sense of conviction, a sense of, "This is true. This what I believe is, is true. I'm not just wishful thinking here. I'm not just going out on a limb. I'm not just hoping that this might be true. Like, I believe this because I'm convicted that it's true. So faith begins with the conviction of what is true. Uh, it includes trust. And you've probably seen the chair illustration. In, in you know, it may be in, in a church setting or in a youth group setting where faith is illustrated with a chair. You say, Well, do you believe this chair will hold you up if you sit in it? And the person says, Yes, but that's not really faith until you trust it, right, to be true and you sit on it. Now that's a, a weak illustration of what faith is, but you get the point that there's there has to be some element of I trust these convictions. Right? I, I believe this is true, I'm convicted that this is true, I believe it to the point that I that I trust it, that I'm willing to stand on it or at times sit in it and at other times to kneel upon it there's a third element of what faith means and that, um, that that has to do with value what is important what matters and so when we think of faith it begins with a conviction of things that we believe to be true and it includes this element of trust but it also includes a sense of value. This matters. It has value for me. So from there, as we go forward in understanding what faith is, Paul is calling for a sincerity of faith, a sense of genuine faith, a sense of faith that's real, that meets up to the definition of what it actually means. Okay, so this is, this is more, than, um, you know, more than a song from the 80s, you gotta have faith, faith. Like, yeah, where it's like, well, you know, I hit, a, I hit a hard time. Okay, well, when you hit a hard time, you just got to have faith. Well, faith in what? Some ideas of faith are simply this idea of optimism or wishful thinking or I'm just going to keep walking forward. That's faith. But what Paul is calling for is a sincerity of faith, a faith that is, if you will, faithful to what the word actually means. A sincerity of faith, genuine um, I love the definition of sincere here. It means to be genuine, but it also means to be irrevocable, immovable, a sense of holding fast. Um, there's, a, uh, an, there's an Old Testament verse in Genesis 2 where the, the husband is called to leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. And then Paul brings that up in Ephesians 5. He basically quotes the verse and calls calls men and women to leave mom and dad and hold fast. It's actually kind of a military term, a sense of holding fast in the midst of adversity. And so this idea of sincerity of faith is a faith that's also, it's not just a trusting faith, it's a faith that's immovable, irrevocable. It holds fast in the midst of adversity. We'll um, let James weigh in on the conversation. James chapter 2 is a long There's a longer passage about faith, and I just want to read a small portion of it um, to help us get our minds around the sincerity of faith that Paul is talking about to Timothy. Then we're going to come back to 2 Timothy and see where Paul talks about it again. But in James chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, a sense of fruit coming out of their life? We talked about this a little bit last week. He says, can that faith save him? It's almost James' way of saying, is that real faith? Is that sincere faith, genuine, trusting, value-placing faith? And then in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So from verse 15 and 16, we see that faith has a relational element to it. It should, it should uh, transform. It should inform the way we treat one another. If our faith is sincere, genuine, trusting, valuable to us, then you will see an evidence of it in the way we treat people, right? We won't simply say, good luck with that. We'll, we'll move in. We'll, be, we'll want to be a part of the tangible process of God working in another person's life. Because why? Because we believe it. To be true. But he ends here with this somewhat famous quote. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we started with a real definition, a biblical definition of faith. That's faith that's alive. But faith that has no feet, no action. Right? No sincerity to it. No trusting to it. It It still falls in the category of belief, as we'll see in just a second, but it's faith that is actually dead. And then he says about the demons, he says in verse 18, some will say, shh, shh, uh, you, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe God is one, right? You have a sense of, I believe in God, I believe in something spiritual, I believe, Fantastic. Says you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. (laughs) Problem is, even the demons believe, and they shudder. And so, in contrast to a sincerity of faith, James would say, "Let me show you what insincere faith looks like. It's just wishful thinking. It's just this idea of religious facade. It's just a hopefulness, a sense of optimism going forward, but it has no tangible substance to it. It's not sincere." It looks more like the faith that demons have than it does those who follow Christ. And so, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, I wanna, I wanna charge you to a love from one another that comes out of that kind of faith, sincere faith. So, um, we're gonna move forward now, but before we do, um, just a couple of questions I wanna, still wanna answer. Um, where do, we, where do we get faith to begin with? Where does faith come from? Does something we just muster up on our own? What do we do in moments where our faith is uh, becoming maybe seemingly weak or we're beginning to be um, fall vulnerable to doubt or we're just really not feeling strong in a moment? What do we do in that moment? We're Christians. Right now, my faith just doesn't feel very strong. What do we do in those moments? What grows our faith? What fuels our faith? What sustains our faith? I think it's important to let... Um, the Apostle Paul interject um, something for us here from Romans 10 as we move forward. Um, And and so this is the same author writing to Timothy about sincerity of faith. In Romans 10, Paul talks about how this gospel that we proclaim, um, it ignites in us this desire to confess and believe in Jesus. And this is what leads to salvation. And so he ends this section in Romans 10 with these short Uh, these short phrases, he says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's just think about that for just a minute. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the words of Christ. So faith comes from hearing. So in other words, if you go back to the chair illustration and I simply just say, if there were a chair up here and there were no chairs in the room, maybe there'd never been a chair invented before and I said, here's a chair, do you think that it will Hold you up and you say, well, I need to know more about the chair. so I describe it to you. I give you the dimensions. I tell you about its strength capacities. And you say, oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can sit in that. I can believe that. Well, right, until there's a chair up here, you can't come test it. And so when we think about believing in something, right, there has to be something to believe in first. I think it may be one of the great uh, issues with um, the, the current Bible Belt generation is all the God talk. There's really... Um, for, for a lot of people who live primarily in the South and South Central, but all across the South, everybody's a Christian, but when you get into the nuts and bolts of it, what makes you a Christian, you have a hard time getting to any substance that would uh, distinguish what they believe, maybe from other religions or just a sense of spirituality, right, and so we call that God talk, just generalization, belief in God, and so there needs to be a substance to what we're believing in, right, And so faith comes from hearing, that's what Paul just got through saying in Romans 2, there needs to be a hearing of something, something that's true. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. And so what I believe Paul is saying to us is that when we hear the gospel, it opens up our ears to hear and ignites within us the capacity to believe it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. In Ephesians 2, he says, we're saved by grace through faith and this isn't your own doing. It's a gift from God. I believe that's how faith comes to us as a gift. I mean, how do you believe? It's actually where he said, how do you believe in something you've never heard in before? Right? There's no substance, there's no chair to sit in, there's nothing to stand upon. So when you hear the gospel, it begins to open up your heart and soften your heart so that you might respond by saying, I believe it. Now, from here, um, you know, we just, last week, when, uh, we were looking at First um, Timothy 3.16, and we spent some time in life groups this weekend talking about the gospel and how the gospel leads to godliness and good works, and it will lead to spiritual disciplines in our life, um, and so, as Paul is talking about godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16, he kind of walks through it, um, that talking about Jesus uh, he, but he says, so he um, he appeared among us, or he appeared in the flesh. And then he says he was vindicated by the Spirit, proved um, by the Spirit of God. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. And the point of that whole passage, which a lot of people believe was probably a, a, a church song, like something they sang, um, is, is that it begins with the word he. You see, our faith is not in a thing. Our faith is in a person. And so when we hear Paul calling the church to a sincerity of faith, it's not just faith in a theological thinking, a theological statement, a description of a religion. It's a faith in a person. That's what the gospel is. It's the proclamation of the person of Jesus, not just a system, right, to make yourself better, but truly to trust the person of Jesus. So when we say we have a faith that is trusting, what do we mean by that? I trust Jesus. We have a faith that says this, this informs my value system. You're saying I value Jesus. Okay, so now moving forward from here, um, what Paul is gonna give us in, uh, in 1 Timothy. Um, Once in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 6, he's going to give us two dangers of an insincere faith or how we find ourselves in an insincere faith. We're going to look at those two real quick, and then we'll move to 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, this is shortly after he has said um, that the aim of our charge is love, that issues from the pure heart, good conscience, and the sincere faith. Just further down in that chapter in verse 18 He says, this charge, so he's talking about the charge again. He just said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You may have heard this, fight the good fight. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, holding faith. Holding faith and a good conscience. So there's this idea again of holding faith fast to your faith. Um, We're going to see in a minute where Paul will use um, nautical illustrations. Um, uh, He talks about the shipwrecking of faith and something Paul was very familiar with. He traveled by boat. He himself was shipwrecked. Um, When it comes to weathering the storms as a ship, you know, the first goal is you want to keep it um, right side up. (laughs) And then second to that, you want to keep it above sea level, okay? Uh, But beyond that, the ships carry cargo and personnel, and you want to keep everything on board. And so one of the ways that you weather the storm on a ship is with the use of lashings. And not lashings like, whoosh, like I'm going to spank you. But this, there are the, the lashings are the ropes and the cords used to tie cargo down, to fasten sails, maybe to pull sails in so that they can weather the storm. And so this holding to your faith is an idea of lashing yourself, tying yourself to what is true, that you might weather the storm. And so here, Paul says it this way, holding the faith lashing yourself in the faith. And then look at what he says, that you, so holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, by not doing this, by not lashing yourself to the faith, some have then shipwrecked their faith. And so there needs to be a sense of, I believe this and I'm gonna lash myself to it even in those times where I don't feel like it. Even in those moments where I'm feeling like my faith is weak or I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a sense of doubt and I'm not quite sure, that you would say, you know what, my heart is lashed to what is true. And, and regardless of whether or not I feel it right now, because faith is not defined by feeling, I still stand on what is true. Right now I'm in the midst of a storm, but I've lashed myself to what is true. So the first danger is not holding fast to your faith that you might be shipwrecked. In um, Ephesians um, four, Paul talks about this as well, the idea of being out on a stormy sea uh, and the way that when we're facing storms, waves can shipwreck us in life. And he says this, I'm just gonna read 14 and 15 of Ephesians four. Um, he just said that it's the role of church leaders to equip the saints for ministry so that the church can grow into maturity of Jesus. So he's thinking about us as one body. Even though we're a lot of different people, we're one body, we're growing up and becoming more and more like Jesus. And then he says right after that, so that, it's important that we grow up to be like Jesus, grow into the image of Jesus, so that we may no longer be children. There's the opposite of that, staying immature in our faith. And here's the problem with that. If we stay like children, we'll be tossed to and fro by the waves. There's the illustration. Okay, what do you mean, Paul? What does it mean to be tossed to and fro? He says be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes when the things that are not true come your way if you're not lashed to the faith standing firm in the gospel you'll be tossed to and fro well maybe this is true this kind of feels good today. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, oh, I just heard this. Maybe this, this is what I want to believe. And there's this to and fro tossed about, almost like if we took our kids out in the middle of the ocean in a hurricane and tossed them out and said, good luck with that. And so he says then in this same passage rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we're beginning to see this picture that our faith then our faith is really contingent upon the substance of what we believe in. Not just how strong I feel in this moment to believe, right? Not just a sense of, I'm really feeling the faith today, but really the strength of our faith is what we have faith in. That's where our faith comes from. That's what grows us and gives us strength and sustains what we believe. So in those moments where things are going well and you're believing well, dig deep wells in what is true. Rather than just running to the Bible when things get hard, run to the Bible when things are hard, but rather than just doing that, running to the Bible when things are well. I mean, how would it work to be in the middle of a storm on the deck of a ship and wait until the hurricane has hit to start lashing things down, right? Too late. You're going to be tossed to and fro. You might get thrown into the sea. So the idea is that in fair weather, in times of good, lash yourself to what is true, all right, the second danger, and this is in 1 Timothy 6 um, that he mentions is this. He says in verse twenty, "O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid, so the, the, the deposit we're understanding is this beautiful gospel. So here's what you need to avoid then. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by prof- professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And so not only can my faith be shipwrecked, I can be swerved from it by getting caught up in irreverent babble, meaningless controversies, things that don't matter. I think there's a, there's a strong warning here um, in the church that our spiritual maturity be founded and, and rooted in, in, in the gospel and in the scriptures and not just apologetics or just end times, theology, or whatever your interest is. Now, those things can be good and helpful, but if that's what you're standing on to weather the storm, right, you're not standing on something that's actually going to last. You may just be standing on the current philosophies of our age or what some brilliant theologian has said. And, And so our spiritual growth must be built upon and rooted in the word of God itself, primarily, Now, if you're into apologetics and you love watching religious debates, go do that. Just don't plant your roots there. Otherwise, the danger is that you might be swerved from your faith. So we stay on the path of our faith by guarding the deposit of the gospel, a sense of standing on it, protecting it at all costs, now, when it comes to parenting, um, I've heard this philosophy um, expressed different parents at different times. Um, even before I was a parent, when I was in youth ministry, I would hear this. You know, I just wanna let them grow up to decide on their own what they will believe. Okay? It's a current, modern, popular, politically correct philosophy for raising children. I'm just gonna grow th- let them grow up to believe what they want to believe. And it sounds very objective, right? It sounds like that way, if they believe, it'll be their decision. A couple of problems with that. Um, first of all, if you're a Christian, the word of God tells you that that's not the philosophy that you need to adopt for parenting to begin with, okay? Um, but second to that, to not have a voice in your children's life, right, does not mean that there's not gonna be a voice spoken to them. The culture they live in The schools that they're going to are speaking into your children's life and trying to convince them on what to stand. So what you're saying is, I'm going to take my dog out of the fight. I'm going to take my voice out of the conversation and just let them hear from the world what they should stand on and believe. So that makes it a ridiculous thing to practice. But there's a third element that I think is important. First of all... um, your children are going to grow up to believe what they want to believe anyway. Many, many children have grown up in God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-acknowledging homes and swerved from the faith. Many children, myself included, grew up in homes that were more agnostic, less devoted to Christ, if at all, no gospel proclaimed ever, and still heard and responded to the gospel. You can't save your children, but you do have a role here to proclaim and to stand on what is true. And here's what I would say to you and myself as a parent. If I adopt this philosophy that I'm just gonna let them grow up to figure out what they want to believe, what I'm saying is I don't have a sincere faith to believe to begin with. If I truly trust that the gospel is the only means of my salvation and putting me in right standing with God, and I don't tell my children that, Either I don't believe it or I don't love my kids. Take your pick. Right? If I don't show my boys that Jesus is not just a God to be be knowledgeable of, but he's a God to fall in love with, he has value to me, my faith isn't genuine at all. And it's my job to teach my boys, this is what daddy believes, what daddy stands on. This is who daddy loves. This is who daddy trusts. And moms, you play such a significant role in this process in raising kids. Look at 2 Timothy 1.5 with me. So we've been all over the New Testament looking at these beautiful definitions of what faith really is. James has warned us. Paul has warned us. We know what sincerity of faith looks like. Look at what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. As he opens up his second letter, he says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith. So everything that I've wrote about and, and, and talked about in terms of what faith really is, Timothy, I've seen it in your life. I've seen it in you. And then look at what he says. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Faith that's alive. It dwells in us. And this isn't just a one-generation Paul high-fiving Timothy's mom. He's saying, Timothy, look at the beautiful gospel lineage of your family. For two generations, godly women have imparted the faith that they stand on, that they believe, that they trust, that they value and love. Remember how your grandma departed that faith to your mom? And this isn't just a girl-to-girl thing, right? And remember how your mom imparted that deposit in you. I've seen it in you, Timothy. Now, remember what faith is. It's the conviction of what is true. Moms, you may very well be, this may shock you, but I believe it's true. You may very well be the most influential theologian your children will ever know. I mean that. Moms, what you say to your children, around your children, that's your doctrine. As your children spectate and observe, they're listening to your words, watching your countenance. They're witnessing your attitude. But deeper than that, they're seeing through those things of what you're really convicted about. Of what is truly valuable to you and who you truly trust. Moms, you have a very significant role in teaching your children sound doctrine. Now, men and women equally have a significant role in the lives of our children. Um, I was thinking of this, this example from Luke 10, uh, Mary and Martha, uh, two sisters, two women who evidently knew Jesus in the person and followed him and they invited him over to their house And if you remember the story, Martha is in the kitchen. She's busy um, about many things. We know what those are, right, ladies? She has her list. This has got to go, and I have to get this done, and this done, and this has to be done, and this has to be done, and, and this has to go in the oven at this time, and I have to have this ready, and this ready, and this ready, and this ready. And you know the list, right? She was busy about all these things, taking care of things in the kitchen, and the home. But then what was Mary doing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus's response in verse 41 of Luke 10, he says, but the Lord answered her, Martha, because Martha gets a little upset about it. She had a mommy moment. You know what I'm talking about, moms, right? Like, I'm overwhelmed. Nobody's helping me. I hope that you're enjoying watching that TV show, but it's not helping me get this done. The house needs to be clean. Your room needs to be picked up. The bed needs to be, right? You know those mommy moments. And a little moment of frustration She speaks out, Jesus, will you tell my sister to get off her duff and get in here and help me? I got all these mommy or woman responsibilities in here, and I love what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things. I see your list. Verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Moms, you you need to hear this. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which is not to be taken from her. And what's he saying? Is the role of cooking for the family important, making sure that our children eat well? And in our house, we have the list of things that mommy's in charge of and the things that daddy's in charge of. And and I just tell our boys, listen, um, I lead our home, but mommy's in charge of what we eat. She's just going to make better choices for our family. Um, and also, what you wear, I mean, those are two areas specifically I don't need to be in charge of, right? Hudson brings me, can I wear this? Sure <laughs> you it looks like you're wearing it camo shorts and 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 the and the you know, the pink polka dot, yeah, absolutely, and the shirts you know too short or okay, but he knows right no no, no, he it is not enough for Daddy to say he needs to go ask mommy, right? Well, can I wear this? It's funny because our youngest Calvin is. Asking profound, moms, children are going to ask you questions. Those are moments to deposit theology. Um, and so the question that, ha- that Calvin's asking me now, because I always do this whole discipline thing. And, and so I say, you know, who, okay, whose job is it to remind you of what you're supposed to be doing? Oh, it's yours, daddy, because you're in charge. That's right. Now his follow-up question is, why are you in charge? <laughs> he asks me until I give him an answer. Why are you in charge? And I say to him, because Jesus put me in charge. Any more questions? (laughs) Sorry. Just a recent daddy moment for me. I heard somebody say this um, recently. There's one, actually one of our members uh, was was just talking about um, the attitude of the home versus how um, picked up the house is, okay? The list of things. And I think this is profound and true. Moms, you need to hear this. Your children will remember the attitude of your home for far longer than they will ever remember how clean it was. Now, I know having a clean home is important to you, okay? I do, and I know that the preparation of food and that things go well, it matters to you. And as husbands and as children, we need to participate in that because we, we love you and we wanna participate in that. But if you're finding your identity in that, you're like Martha and you're anxious and busy about many things. And you've, and you've, missed, you've missed the better decision. To be at the feet of Jesus. And if you think about it, ladies, you're so much better at relationships than guys are for the most part. I mean, you get a little catty every now and then, but <laughs> but relationships tend to mean more to you than they do to us. I can go months without seeing a best friend and pick right back up where I lost. And awesome. how he's like, are y'all okay? Like, yeah, why would we not be okay? But ladies, there needs to be this interaction. You're much more involved in for the for the most part with relationships. If our faith is not in a thing, but in a whom. It's a relational faith. You have a very significant role in teaching your children to have a relationship with Jesus. We are horrible at it. Now, dads, you need to participate in it, but moms, day in, day out, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? You, you have a perfect platform to display that for your kids, a true sincerity of faith. Here's where I want to end. I want to read something over us. And uh, this is from 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then we're going we're to pray together. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, right after he mentions this beautiful faith that Timothy has that was imparted from his grandmother to his mother to him, in verse 8 then, he says, Therefore, Timothy, since this faith has been entrusted to you through this beautiful lineage, He says, therefore, this is verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he says, nor of me, his prisoner, but sharing in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In verse 9, he's going to move into the gospel who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our words but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which is now being manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And he reminds Timothy, remember, he abolished death and brought life and and immortality to light through the gospel. He's reminding Timothy of this gospel that he's standing on. Ladies, His mom and grandma passed this on to him. This is beautiful theology. This is what you believe. In verse 11, he reminds Timothy of his appointment. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Um, Moms and dad, your appointment to that position is by God. You've been appointed and called to those positions. And this is where I want to get to, verses 12-12. 13, and 14, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's describing what it means to be lashed to what is true. It's to not be ashamed of it. Don't you love the faith of a child? They're not ashamed. They're not embarrassed. They're not worried about what people think. Timothy got that faith from his mom to not be ashamed and to stand. And Paul is saying, stay lashed to that. I am not ashamed for I know whom I I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the deposit entrusted to you I want to end with uh, something that I, I heard from uh, Pastor John Piper on the role of women and um, he's, he, he talked for uh, he has a teaching on biblical manhood womanhood and he talks about the significant role of women not just in shaping children but in shaping the world through children and an observation he makes, I think we would all agree, is for the most part true. If you look at the world as a whole, um, it's the world is predominantly led by men. If you look at you know, presidents and dictators and authorities, not not saying that there aren't some, fanta- I mean, women who lead out, both good and bad, um, but primarily the world is governed uh, in leadership by men. Okay, and uh, and so if we look at that, then our one conclusion might be then men have a more significant role in shaping the world. And so he talks a little bit about you know, the authority of like the president, the authority of a dictator to issue rules and to set up parameters and to govern a society in a certain direction. But then he talks about how the heart is shaped and governed. And he talks about how a mom on her knees for her children has more power to change the world than the president of the United States, the dictator of some communist regime, because you can't dictate heart change. And and ladies, I know that, um, here's the thing, God's functional calling for men and women, both in the family and in the church, I believe has very little to do with competency. And so as God calls men to lead the home, I don't think what he's saying is, I just created men smarter. Amen, men? Okay, just make sure you're still awake out there. My role to lead my family is not God looking at my IQ test and going, well, I'm gonna let you lead because you're smarter. If anything's true, it's the opposite of that, okay? So it's not a competency thing, nor is it a value thing. God doesn't call me to lead my home, Jason, because because you're just gonna do a better job. You're going to, you've just got more value, so I want you to do that, I trust you more. It's not at all. Function doesn't determine value or significance. God has created the husband and wife to work as a beautiful complement, partnership together, and and men lead, and you'll lead better when you learn how to open up your ears to hear the discernment of the Holy Spirit in your wives. And let them speak into decisions in humility and to, to listen to them think through things. And ladies, you've been called to a significant role in the kingdom. Your moms. Now, what do we do when we mess that up? Any moms mess that up? <laughs> talking about those moments, those Martha moments. We speak out of frustration. We, right? You've had those moments. What do you do? We follow Mary's example to the feet of Jesus because our sincerity of faith, because we believe it's true, we trust it, and we trust the feet of Jesus. And that's where we take our failures. Ladies, you need to know that. You can't lead your children to the feet of Jesus unless you find yourself there. Your children will learn about what grace looks like by watching grace happen to you. As you seek forgiveness, as Jesus' grace washes over you, as Jesus compels you to go to your children at times and say, listen, I'm sorry I lashed out, I'm sorry I spoke out of anger, I'm sorry I, I was just a little bit frustrated, I'm sorry I made the dishes more important than you. Or you know, As you do that with your children, what you're doing is you're saying, I value and trust the gospel. And your children will see that in you. I want to pray for us this morning. And, and you know, this is, again, much bigger than just moms. We've got, um, we've got men and women in here. We've got ladies who are moms and ladies who are not. We have ladies who are not moms who want to be moms. Some ladies who are moms who don't want to be moms. And, you know, <laughs> all across the board. Um, just being honest. Um, What I want to do is I want to pray that this deposit that has been deposited in us, this beautiful gospel, would continue to take root as we lash ourselves to it. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Father, thank you for your counsel to us and for uh, the beautiful description we get of the role of moms and dads. And so today we're thinking mostly about moms As we think about our own moms, there's so many ways that we have been richly blessed. Um, today, as we think about our role now to step up into this calling and to shape the world through the way we shape the hearts of our children and the next generation, God, I pray, I pray that the gospel would be a stirring of an encouragement this morning, that it would be the place that we bring our failures It would be the place that we come to be encouraged, the place that we come to be reminded of the significance of our role. I pray this beautiful gospel that Jesus, you came to the earth, you took on our flesh and lived a righteous life. And through your death and resurrection, you have given us forgiveness of our sins. You've restored our failures and you've imparted your righteousness and you've called us now to lead. I pray that this beautiful gospel would be the place that we run to this morning. For any person who's here this morning, God, that doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they would trust you, truly believe to trust you and value you as their Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name.